This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're speaking with Arlen Hamilton, the founder and managing partner of the venture capital firm Backstage Capital. It's focused on raising money to invest in companies led by women, people of color, and members of the LGBT community. Founders who are underrepresented and often underestimated in venture capital. Arlen knows what it's like to feel like an outsider and to be underestimated. About nine years ago, she was working in the music industry. She wanted more, so she crowdsourced, took a class, and in 2015, launched her company. It hasn't been easy. Less than 10% of venture capital goes to underrepresented founders. But Arlen's determined to change that. And she's here today to tell us how. Welcome, Arlen. Hey, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. First, how are you doing? I take things day to day. Uh, I'm doing well right now, and uh, I feel I feel optimistic, but I have to tell you, I'm pretty exhausted. Mm. You just came out with a book. Yes. It's called It's About Damn Time. Congrats on that. Thank you very much. The book talks about how people can use being underestimated to their advantage, how have people underestimated you? Yes, I, I think any woman can relate to this. Any person of color can relate to this. Being in a room and maybe you're the only at the time and you're relegated to maybe secretary or you're relegated to grab a coffee, take notes when you actually are, are the executive or the person coming in to present. Uh, that's happened to me a lot. And I just think my whole life has been that way in, in a lot of situations. And even more so, what reaches me uh, or affects me even more and the reason I started writing this book is that I've just heard this from almost everybody I know who is a woman, a person of color, or LGBTQ, at some point they were underestimated. And after a while, you know, I th my opinion is we can stay there, stay there in a mindset and let other people determine who we are and what, what our station is, et cetera. Or we can flip the script and we can start using that to our advantage in different ways. So let's talk about how you flipped the script. Your company's named Backstage Capital, and that's where you were working backstage in the music industry, booking tours, when you decided to get into the venture capital business. In a very basic sense, you raise money to invest in startups and small businesses that have high growth potential. Talk us through that career transition. <laughs> I was working in live music, so I had done some indie booking in my early 20s, um, and then that turned into a lot of other things and a winding road. And then eventually I said in my late 20s, I said, I want to work on arena level tours. And I just worked my way up. It took a decade to get to where I wanted to be, which was working with people like Jason Derulo and Tony Braxton and, and others. 
anywhere from a production assistant to production coordinator to road manager position, depending on who the artist was and where we were, what we were doing. And during that time is when I started, it was very early 30s, I started noticing people like Ellen and people like Justin Bieber and his management team and Troy Carter, who used to be Lady Gaga's manager. Um, These different people who I had an eye on just in the background, I started noticing these little clips, these little press clippings that said that they were making investments in Silicon Valley into these little apps that had two or three people behind them or teams of 10 or less and that they were making like $50,000 or so investments and then they, these companies were going on to be acquired and this and that. And I just thought, even beyond the money of it, I thought, wow, what is so interesting and so attractive about that, that it's making people who I figure have very exciting lives already and probably already diversify. What is it, what is it about Silicon Valley that's drawing them? And that's when I started learning okay, this is where actually, these are where really innovative and brilliant minds come. A lot of the time, sometimes you have grifters, but, uh, you know, they supposedly come to create things that are just so um, next level moonshot ideas. And the more I researched what an ideal founder was, the more I started seeing myself in that. I had just never known what to call it. And I had always felt outsider, you know, I, I compare it to coming out for a second time because I, I was like, oh, those are my people. Oh, OK, I get it. That's I'm not weird. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to think like this and that I was made for this. And so that's what started the the curiosity. How did you learn the industry, though? Because it sounds like you didn't have the background. Maybe you didn't know a lot of people. How did you teach it to yourself? And then also, how did you get those people to even take a meeting with you? Well, I started with curiosity, as I said before, but then it became like obsession. (laughs) And I just read everything I could possibly get my hands on. I listened to every interview I could possibly find with these different players. I got real nerdy with it. I made flashcards. I made uh, flow charts. I made all sorts of things. I got a whiteboard. I had like very minimal furniture at the time, but I had a whiteboard. And I would teach myself formulas and, and things about, you know, cap tables, which is, is how a investor stack is in, in a certain company. And I would just do that. And it took years. And so it was years of like every day working on this. And essentially, it was a, a, a four-year homeschool. And my mentors were people who didn't know me. They were people who I would read about and take their words because they, they had done it. And um, maybe not the way that I was attempting and maybe not with the same challenges, but they had done it. And so I was looking at their blueprint. And so as I did that, and the way that I did it, which was so uh, granular and so step-by-step, I started acquiring all this information. So what I didn't have in capital, I was making up for in information. Then I was able to take that and start explaining it to other people because it was about like, you know, why should only these few guys, and it was mostly guys investing, why should they have all the fun? Like, why should they be the ones that get to to do this? There's no real reason, you know? So I I started having, you know, accumulating this information and that became interesting to people who had money. 
because for the first few years, it was just no. It was just no. It was just no. <laughs> I would ask, and I would just say, eh, no, I don't know what you're really working on it. We don't really talk about diversity around here. You know, it was very hushed. I mean, it was very, it was a different time, even though it was only a few years ago. And then over time, you know, it's interesting, the, the conversations I started having when people, again, we talk about being underestimated. I'd walk in, not only because of my race or my gender, my orientation, but because, I mean, I'm plus size and because I don't wear like anything fancy. I still don't. Like I'm a hoodie and jeans person. I will be when I'm a billionaire. It's just the way it is. Um, even just walking into a room physically or walking into a restaurant or a coffee shop to have the meeting, I, I would have to go through these steps and these levels of getting people to understand me. Uh, and that just happened uh, yesterday when I was buying a car. <laughs> it happened. It, it, it has, doesn't stop, you know. Um, but once they f- figured out I knew what I was talking about and that not only did I know what I was talking about, but I could be helpful to them. I could give them an edge. And I had this access to people because I was all along talking to other founders and, 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 and starting a network in that way and becoming valuable to the founders, that's when the investors started saying, oh, wait a minute, we probably should have a little skin in the game because, you, you know, it may go to zero like anything could or it could be something. And, and I just kind of pushed the, kicked the rock a little bit further, kicked the can a little bit further every day. We spoke to the founders of Shine, who are female founders of color, and they told us how hard it was to get an angel investor, basically someone to give them that first big investment to launch their business without having friends or family to turn to. Tell us how you got your first check from an angel investor. Yeah, so my first check was from Susan Kimberlin. She used to work at PayPal and Salesforce as a product manager. I will always, always shout her out and always remember her even though we have now raised millions and her first uh, check was the first 50K of that. I was in Texas, where I'm from, and I got myself to Silicon Valley and I was taking a an investor course at Stanford that was like a boot camp. And I was the poorest person there. If people didn't realize, you know, the catered meal that we had during the day was my food for the day. But um, I met her there and I told her what I was up to and I, I learned more about her. And I felt we were aligned in this group of people. I felt of the, of the group, she and I were the most aligned. So I asked her uh, if she would be willing to invest. You know, I didn't tell her anything about my personal issues with housing insecurity or anything like that. But I just said, would you invest? And at first it was a yes. And then we went to do the transaction. I was so excited. I was like, oh, my goodness, after years. Woo. And then she said, oh, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to say no, because you're, you don't have a, like a, a business bank account. <laughs> who, who, what do you do? And it was because I was using like a personal bank account that I shared with my mom. That's how, that's how, you know, I had all of this information. It's almost like a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have someone who's like, has everything going for them in a certain way, but they just don't, they don't get the social cues, right? They don't do the the right thing on paper. And that's where I was. And, and I appreciated that from her because I went out, got a business account. Uh, I had a lawyer, like uh, pro bono, who was ready to work with me for my career. And uh, three months later, I came back to her. We kept in touch. And I said, look, this is what I've done over the summer. And she's like, you just 
keep going, don't you? No matter what, you just keep going. And I'm like, yeah, this is I this has to exist. This fund has to exist. And she said, you know what? Uh, give me 24 hours and I'll make a decision. And then she sent me a text and she said, I'm in. But you need more than one check. You were raising millions of dollars. So what was your pitch and what did people say to you when you were out there? It was a several year process. So it, the, the, the pitch, the thesis never changed. It was always I want to get more resources and funding into the hands of underrepresented founders because they've done so much with so little. Imagine what they'll do with more. The pitch changed a little bit because I learned to be I learned what was driving most of the investors. And so I didn't change who I was. and I didn't change what the meaning of it was, but I changed I presented to them more something more aligned with what was going to matter to them, which was that you, I, I wasn't going to be able to promise them that I would make them significantly richer immediately. You know, when you have a billion dollars, like some of the people I was talking to, or you have $10 million or that, I I can't promise you that in a few years, I'm going to just, you know, 10x your entire net worth. That's just not going to happen. What I could promise was that they would have a front row seat to something really uh, spectacular, something very different, uh, maybe even uh, revolutionary, and um, that they would be impacting hundreds and hundreds of lives directly and then maybe thousands and maybe tens of thousands and so on indirectly and that started resonating with people not that we were an impact fund but that impact could be a very interesting byproduct of this for-profit return on investment and so I just kept going and it really was the, the first investor, Susan, she introduced me to my second investor, Jocelyn. Jocelyn in, in, uh, introduced me to my third investor, Lars, and Lars introduced me to, you know, and it kept going like that. And it was just like, it's almost like if you imagine someone pushing a boulder up a mountain and just going step by step by step. And if you, if you give up your momentum or your focus or your determination at any point, it's going to roll back on you. That's how I felt, honestly. That's how I felt for the past nine years. Um, just p- slowly but surely pushing that boulder up. But over time, you look around and you've made it quite high up and you didn't even realize it. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Arlen's going to describe the challenges founders of color face and how she's changing the conversation about diversity and inclusion in Silicon Valley. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So let's talk about some of the challenges in this space. I want to throw out some numbers. Uh, So according to a 2018 Digital Undivided study, which looked at the state of black women founders in the United States, since 2009, businesses led by black women have raised about $289 million of the total $425 billion raised during this period. 
or just 0.0006%. Most of the big money is held by men, many of them white and cisgender. Were you going after this money or did you just target other clients? I'm going after this money and I'm going after it partially on behalf of of this group. I mean, you just said something that um, is incredible. The amount of money that went to this group, almost the equivalent of one round of funding for like a a growing kind of a hot ticket item in in, um, Silicon Valley. There's a there's a e-scooter company that comes to mind that raised just about that and one of their many rounds. And, you know, like so it's staggering Uh, And it's insulting. What are those main hurdles in raising money for underrepresented founders? Misconceptions and biases. And um, and that's on the good side. That's on the the positive optimistic side to say that someone has a misconception about you or someone has uh, an unconscious bias. On the more um, the deeper side, there's a lot of um, underlying racism. There's a lot of misogyny. I mean, 2018 showed that, proved that out. Same time the Me Too movement was making its way through um, or finding its way through Hollywood. It was also happening in Silicon Valley. There were just this, you know, complete um, unveiling of all these truths that many of us already knew, but it was coming to light. You have a founder story and every founder is expected to have a story. Is there a certain type of narrative that investors expect from minority founders? Mm, I love that question. Yeah, I think for the most part, especially white investors. I I used to say this and it was very controversial. So I stopped saying it just because I didn't want to. I didn't want to be misconstrued. But I used to say that I felt in Silicon Valley to get a check as a black person, you either had to be like Oprah, you had to like have done what I've done or be come out of prison and have the a mm. sad story. Mm. And it's it's true like I think it's almost like if you think about the draft, the NFL draft or uh or any kind of like competition show on TV, they can't just let you go out there and be talented. You got to have a sad sob story. That is just heartstrings because somehow it makes it makes them feel better that they're giving you this opportunity. Underrepresented does not mean down and out. It means in most cases that you have done more with less. That's why we flipped a script and call it underestimated. Given that, what do you tell your founders when they are pitching? We do have these conversations a lot and we just let them know that it's not important to just take any check. You know, even if it means that it's going to take longer for us to see a return or that we never see a return, I'd rather you kept your dignity intact and that you did things the way that you felt was was right as a founder, as a team, than having to play some sort of really, really dangerous game uh, with with an investor. Because if they're if they're treating you a certain way in a meeting, imagine what the next 10 years of the relationship is going to be like. That's not, that is just not good for anyone. And I also talk to investors. Anytime we make an introduction to an investor, um, we've either vetted them already and feel comfortable with them, or we tell them as a group, 
we're watching you. It's okay to, to stumble and to not be perfectly phrased and to even say things that are uncomfortable because we will correct you. But to ha- to come into this thinking that you're some sort of white knight or you're some sort of savior, when we're giving you an opportunity to own equity in a company that could do really well in return to you, that's why we say, you know, we're honored to have an investment. They let us into their investment round, even when we're the first investors. Because there are other options. There are other options for that founder. They could bootstrap. They could go to other people. All money isn't, um, isn't you know, equal. So, Arlen, you faced a lot of challenges. For example, two years ago, you were trying to raise $36 million for a fund that would invest in businesses run by black and brown women. What happened with that fund? We uh, set that fund up originally at the beginning of 2018 so we secured uh, several investors, early investors. We secured an anchor, and we started talking about it. And it was announced, um, you know, my my exact words were that we were had launched the fund and were raising the fund. It was announced that it was sort of a done deal. And we spent, a, you know, a few weeks trying to make sure that everybody understood that it was raising so that we could draw investors in. Um, and what ended up happening is that the anchor for their own reasons had to back out and then we spent several months trying to find someone to come in and when the anchor backed out a lot of other people backed out this happens um a lot to us and so we weren't really that concerned about it but other people were (laughs) and it was reported like far and wide as like some sort of massive failure and this and that didn't come together and I was, it was very confusing to me because we were just simply in the middle of a raise. And um, I, I know I can name at least a dozen white men who are in the middle of their raise but haven't been put on blast. So a few things happened in between. Um, we, we, we lost the momentum with that particular fund. We went on to launch an accelerator, though, in 2019 that launched in four cities in two countries that had 1,900 applications that we invested in 24 companies. So I'm excited about that. And then um, I think today the, the, the quest that I have to and put a million dollars at a time into black women-led companies has not stopped, has not changed. And what I've been able to do now is just repurpose the, 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 the how, the mechanism. You said, you know, some of those funders backed out of the fund that you were trying to launch and you said that happens to you guys a fair amount. How come that happens, do you think? I think it's a combination. Like I I, I, I am not going to t- say that every single thing, every single setback is because of my race or because of my gender or, or any of that. I would say three-fourths of it is, <laughs> really, if we're being honest, because so much happens behind the scenes that it never gets reported. But part of it is also our track record. I mean, we are a very early fund and we invest in companies early. So a lot of times when institutional investors or even family offices are thinking about, like thinking through their investment structure, it's hard to underwrite us because they love us on pay, like they love us as an entity. They lo- they understand that we're seeing more uh, companies, uh, diverse founders, or founders from diverse uh, uh, profiles than any other fund in the country. They that's undeniable. Um, but the fact that it takes usually seven to ten years for a fund manager to kind of prove themselves out to show that they're any good at this. Uh, 
and we are four and a half years in, makes things more difficult. So usually what happens is uh, an investor will look at it and say, well, you've, you've raised a small fund. And this happens over and over and over again. You've raised this small fund. It's three years or so in. I like your choices and there's, I see some traction. I see that you've had several companies have gone on to get a series A or a series B and they're raising more and they're doing this and that. So I'm going to put a bet on you again or for the first time, even though I don't see an outcome yet. I'm just going to base it on your potential. That happens quite a bit if, if it happens. With us, we haven't been so much afforded that because it's like a, such a meta thing. It's like it kind of just goes back to, well, the benefit of the doubt isn't really handed over to us. It's like, well, wh- I don't see any exits Well, it's four and a half years in. We're talking about 100 companies plus who all uh, face some sort of discrimination. For instance, I'll give you a great example. We have a company in our portfolio who just recently, this uh, month, announced uh, uh, nearly a $10 million Series A. And they're just an amazing company. They're called Care Academy. And had an amazing lead, and and uh, just couldn't couldn't find a, a a better founder team. They've been around for seven years. It took them seven years to get to a Series A, and they are brilliant, and they are on revenue, uh, you know, based all of that. They're everything on paper you're supposed to be. But let's have a conversation about those seven years and why it took that long. So what we're doing is we're backing founders like that. So we're not going to look the same to an investor who is so used to seeing things happen a certain way at a certain time. There seems to be more corporate awareness out there, support for black issues and black businesses. Has that rippled over into venture capital? Are you getting more calls from potential investors about companies? Yes. Getting a lot of inbound. Some of it, I think, is actually very sincere, and I think it's actually going to be a change. It took me n- almost nine years to raise about $7 million in investment capital alone. I've raised m- more that than that and, and generated a lot of revenue. But to raise like the the money that we put behind other companies it took me about nine years to raise seven million. It's taken me about nine days to pull in almost seven million. Wow. I mean, what do you make of this as someone who raises money for her company? And and also, how do you make sure an investor isn't just using you to check a box or for good PR, for example? I'm sure many have. I'm sure many have used us to check a box or for good PR. Uh, I think that if someone is is wanting to get better and be better and and learn and and learn from us, that's okay with me if they kind of pat themselves on the back. Uh, But I'm I'm pretty good at figuring out people's intentions when it comes to putting money behind us because I've met with so many. I've met with more than a thousand investors over the past five years and I just I'm pretty good at knowing what their intention is behind it. Um. What I really like, I'll give you a great example of someone that I thought was really cool the way that they did it. So Mark Cuban reached out to me in 2019 when I had that press about not having the fund raised. And he said, um, he just emailed me and he said, I want to put a million dollars into a bank account. You go ahead and just invest that however you see fit. 
and um, it's you, you know I'll be your sole LP, I'll be your sole investor for this particular fund, and I won't have any say over what you invest in, and just make us some money back, and get a get a, you know more of a track record, and uh, and and also I'll give you more of a a fee than than most people get, like on top of that. So he gave me a very respectable fee. Um. I said, great, I'm, I, I can help you put together the PR, you know, the press release. I can help, you know, we're really good at that. We, we, we have a lot of connections to press. He said, you don't have to do that. It's up to you, whichever you'd like to do. So for weeks and weeks and weeks, we just did it. We just worked. He didn't need a pat on the back. He didn't need a parade. And I made the decision. I said, you know what, I'm going to tell people that you did this because it's pretty cool. And um, today he is our largest investor. One year from now, do you think companies in society are still going to be talking about diversity and inclusion with the same passion we are now? One year from now, I don't know if we will. Um, I think we may just because I think it's like a two year little runway, two or three year runway. But what I what I hope more importantly is that the revolution is happening. You know, there's a, ch- a, it's a, ch- a market change like you can't, an undeniable change in the force is happening where you're not just talking about it. We're not just doing really, haven't gotten really great at our press releases. We're actually doing something. We're actually, there's a list that came out recently that had like 50 top executives in tech and none of them are black. Give us a couple of years. We're going to dominate that list, you know? Thank you so much for joining us, Arlen. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, the platform. If you'd like to hear more inspiring secret stories, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trine Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Beret Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com Claude.